Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to this pre-recording of this Cosmic Soup show to air on February 28th, 2024. We have two tapes for you on very different subjects. The first tape is Tucker Carlson interviewing Z Van Fleet, who, was, who grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. Most of us know little or nothing about this critical historical event, and that makes me think of the old adage that if we do not understand our past, we are condemned to relive it. The second tape is very different. It gets heavily into what we refer to as the woo-woo. This is an interview by Celeste Solem interviewing Chad Riley, who has a film out entitled Skywalker Ranch, Strange Things of the Unseen World. So let us begin with Tucker Carlson's interview entitled America is Following in China's Footsteps. Here's how we stop it. Shortly after George Floyd died, Memorial Day weekend 2020, people began to say that what was happening in the United States bore some resemblance to what happened in China 50 years ago, the Cultural Revolution, with Red Guards and struggle sessions, public humiliations, public atonements, a kind of secular frenzy that looked very much like a hate-centered religious right, the Cultural Revolution. But was that overstatement? Well, Xi Van Fleet has seen both. She's Chinese. She was seven years old in 1966 when the Cultural Revolution started and 17 when it ended with Mao's death in 1976. And along the way, she became one of its victims. She moved to this country, to Kentucky, in 1986, and she's been here ever since. So she has seen both revolutions firsthand, and she's written a new book comparing them with a warning. It's called Mao's America. And we're grateful to have her, Shi Van Fleet, in the studio with us now. Shi, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. This is um, unbelievable that I'm here with you. Oh, I'm so grateful you are. So you were seven years old when the Cultural Revolution started, the equivalent of first grade. When, what was the moment that you realized something strange and important was happening in China? Yes. To me, my memory is it happened overnight. And overnight, I just noticed there's a lot of what's called big, character posters everywhere. It's just big pieces of paper and with uh, words written in very large letters so everyone can read it from distance, kind of like today's social media. Crude propaganda. Uh, yes, it's really um, the uh, posters is really of people uh, denouncing others. In my school, I remember it's, uh, the papers were denouncing uh, administrators or teachers. And it's overnight, and it's just everywhere and in the cafeteria because that's the only place that a high wall that's indoor. And it's just from a ceiling, uh, from the uh, floor to the ceiling, and it's a uh, uh, class uh, stopped. And so one day I went to the uh, classroom and I saw a, a note on the blackboard. No class for three days. And that three days lasted for two years. Two years? Two years. No school. Because 
the school was like all the other institutions was shut down by the red guards, and the red guards. And uh, I think nowadays more and more Americans are familiar with that. And red guards were the uh, kids from uh, elementary school to universities. So they took over the country. So there's no school for two years. So what I、uh, what did we do as a kid? We went to the street. So every day we went to the street. We watch the Cultural Revolution unfolding, and that is struggle sessions, parade. Of those people who were denounced, and eventually become violence. So it was young people aiming their rage at the behest and the direction of the central government of Mao、mm-hmm. against not foreigners who threatened China, but against against Chinese, against your own people. Yes, and it is difficult even for me to understand, and it took me a long time to understand what that Cultural Revolution was about. It is a revolution. That Mao launched against CCP, against his own party, against his own government. Why? Because he thought he was losing influence. He thought he was、uh, no longer had abs-、uh, absolute power. So it's really a power struggle. And this time, he did not use the armies. He did not have to. He had tens of millions of young people that he have indoctrinated. In the government school for the past seventeen years, they're ready to go. Just give them a call. Say, you are now mo-、uh, mobilized to defend the、uh, to defend Mao and to defend communism. And that's what uh, uh, the uh, how they got the、uh, kids all involved. And very、uh, familiar to Americans now, they dismantled the uh, uh, criminal justice system. No police, really. Just like a defund police, so the red guards could do anything. There are no consequences, and eventually, they start to kill, kill their teachers, kill their principals, and they kill millions of people. Did I mean the normal people who are watching this? Your family, I assume.、Um, did anybody say anything about it? Nobody can say anything. Just like here, why? Because Mao openly supported them, and Mao had uh, eight uh, rallies to meet the uh, uh, Red Guards in Tiananmen Square eight times to declare that he was their Red Commander in Chief, and those are his little Red Guards. So there's no dissent at all, at all, and things just get. Progressively crazier and crazier and crazier. Did people think that this was going to stop? No one knows. And I remember that、uh, in the first and it started. It was、uh, somewhat peaceful because all they did was uh, uh, destroy the、uh, the past. In Mao's words, it's the four old, old ideas, old culture, old custom, and old habits. Get rid of them all. That include、uh, destroy all the、uh, statues. The statues mostly in Buddhist statues, Christian statues. Everything has to come down, and everything that is old has to be destroyed. So when they finish with the public、uh, spaces, they went to people's homes. And I witness the red guards went to people's homes, took everything they thought was old. Old is bad. 
old is something that need to be get rid of, including furniture, people's old photos, and everything. Because the goal is to get rid of the past so we can replace it with the pure Maoism. I remember reading about the Cultural Revolution years ago, reading a biography of Mao, and was so struck by how much Mao hated the Chinese, hated the country, hated the history, hated the culture, and yet he was in charge of the country. And I thought that's very strange. So we were taught that Mao was our savior. Yes. And we have songs saying that he was our savior. He made it possible for us to have a better life. Why? Because he removed these three big mountains that had been suppressing Chinese people. They are the foreign imperialism, the old feudalism, and the bourgeois or capitalism. Yes. He removed them all. That's why we could have such happy life. So no, no, no. We never thought that uh, that he hated us. No, he did. But we were taught we should be so grateful. And he was our not only savior during the Cultural Revolution, he really became our god. Was there a? Do you remember the moment that the Red Guard went from carrying slogans and yelling at people, humiliating them, to the point where they went to killing people? Did that seem? Were you shocked by that? Were people shocked no, by that? Actually, it started about the same time, because the only、uh, in the very beginning, it only started on campuses. And、uh, and Kenning started as early as August of 1966, few months after the Cultural Revolution. The first killing took place in a very prestigious middle school for girls. They bunch of girls, young girls, as as young as 12, as old as 16. They beat, tortured, and killed their principal. That was in August. 1966, and、uh, I was、um, elementary school、uh, student. So in my school, I did not see killing, but I did see attacks by the kids. And one of the things I remember so vividly is a teacher. She is a she she is a a pretty teacher, and she usually will dress kind of nicely, and that's considered bourgeois. So the、uh, the、uh, kids followed her, call her names. Eventually, they surrounded her and spit on her. So after a while, she was covered with spit from head to toe, and that was considered mild because she was not hurt、uh, physically. The same time we heard killing happened in middle school, especially in universities. But the police were told to stay away from campuses, and if the red guards hit them. They are not allowed to hit back, just like here. So, what happened to you as you got older during this period? So, the violence of the、uh, Red Guard movement、um, lasted until 1969. Yes. By then, all the power was taken down by the Red Guard for Mao. So, basically, the, all the institutions all paralyzed. There's no one in charge. So they thought, okay, now it's time for us to get some power, and then they start to fight each other for power, and that's when it's getting really, really violent. It become almost like a civil war. They raided the military、uh, institute,、um, 
they raided the military places and got real weapon. Before it was just sticks and stones and rocks, and now it's a real weapon. And they started to kill each other. The different Red Guard factions. Factions, because they thought now it's time for now for us to get power. And then exactly it's the faction. It got so bad that tanks were deployed in cities where there's a lot of defense factory, and that's not that far from where I live. And、uh, and it was not safe by then for us to go to the street. One day, a stray bullet landed under our window when we have dinner. So it was, and it was so bad that one day I described in my book that we were outside and we heard this really awful Chinese funeral music, and then words came back that they have a corpse parade. So it's one faction of the Red Guards try to gain public、uh, sympathy. So they had the people that were killed by the other faction on the parade. That is、uh, the time that Mao got rid of them. So they basically they were his creation. He gave them all this power、yes. to consolidate his own.、Mm-hmm. But once they became a threat to him, he did what? He suppressed them. Yeah, sent military to suppress them. So they,、uh, I, we don't know the number, the real number, but he killed tens of thousands of Red Guards, and then eventually he got them together. The leaders and said, "You disappointed me," and then, just like that, the whole movement was dismantled, and they all sent to the countryside. Many of them sent to the virgin land, like a gulags, to be re-educated through physical labor, and that's how you become real communists. You can't just do the uh, uh, what you did in the city. You have to be、uh, really. Goes through hard labor to become a real communist, and off they go. And for from nineteen six、uh, from nineteen sixty nine, from that time on, all city kids from high school were sent to the countryside. And when I graduated from high school、um, in nineteen seventy five, I was too sent to the countryside and doing the physical、uh, labor that was very primitive. And I stayed there for three years. After Mao died, and after Deng Xiaoping reopened universities, that's how I could go to college to study. What did you do in the countryside?、Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is not a farm. So a lot of people think about the countryside. They think about farm. No. Yeah, C- countryside here is a good thing. Yeah. No. 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 It's a a commune. Every a rural area was arranged or organized as commune. Commune collective farming. So in the commune, there are a lot of production teams, and、uh, so it's all run by the CCP. So what I did is、uh, every day we would gather in the meeting place of the production team, and the leader would tell us what to do. So we do the work, and we get a point, and then in the harvest time, you use the point to get some uh, uh, produce, grain or potato or whatever. To get food. To get food, yeah. So I not only experienced and witnessed the whole cultural revolution, I also got three years working the fields and get to know how peasants live. Those peasants put Mao in power. He mobilized the whole 
peasantry and promised them free land. They put them in power. After the culture, uh, after the uh, revolution succeeded yes. in 1949, they peasants, the, the same people that put them into power found them in the very bottom of the society. And they were the ones that could not leave their land because of the, uh, uh, it's called a hukou. It's like a household registration system. Yes. So they could not, they become serfs. They just really live a life of the poorest. And uh, so, and I kind of, in a way, I'm glad I get a chance to be with them and to know that this is communism. This is socialism, supposedly to liberate them from the oppression of the oppressors. And then they end up way more worse off than before. And during the famine, in 1970, 1959 to 1962, up to 50 of them starved to death, the peasants. 50 million. 50 million. Unbelievable. So you're there three years. So you're there from 75 to 78. And then eight years later, you're in the United States. How did you get here and why did you come here? So I was so lucky that I was able to go to college at the uh, um, age of 19, which is still not, because I was sent to the countryside when I was only 16. So after I uh, got my degree, I was given a job. You don't just get a job, you were given a job. So I was given a job to teach in a teacher's college. And uh, in the early 80s, uh, more and more Americans um, come to China to volunteer to teach during the summer. So there I met um, a wonderful lady. Her name is Pat Maeve. We become friends. And uh, she wanted to help me to come to America. And uh, so true to her words, she did help me. She got assistantship uh, for me and she sponsored me. So in 1986, I never dreamed that would happen to me, and I got my visa, and I was on my way to America. Amazing. Amazing. And you went to Kentucky. Kentucky. Western Kentucky University. <laughs> so you lived here, you married an American, you lived in this country, it sounds, happily from, let's just say, 86 to 2020. Mm -hmm. George Floyd gets killed, and all of a sudden, in a day, the country changes. What did you notice about those early days, late May, early June, 2020? And what did it make you think as you watched it? It's a long time coming because uh, I start to notice things earlier, even as early as 1990s. And I remember in a class that I took, and it's about special education, when the uh, the uh, Act of uh, American Disability. The ADA, Americans yes, with Disabilities, yeah. 1990, Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And the teacher was telling us, you know, now, you know, that they are protected. And uh, as uh, uh, teachers, um, that we should, I just took the class, but there are others that were uh, special ed teachers, that we should be very, very respectful. And we should never say blind. We should say people with vision, uh, impaired vision, something like that. I don't even remember. And I was so impressed. I said, the Americans are the nicest people. They try, you know, <laughs> to be nice and not, you know, not hurt people's feelings. And now we know, right? During the process, and we were taught, 
you you can't say in, uh, vision uh, impaired. Now it's something 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 different. And now you know what? What's the correct way to call the, those people? Blind. Blind. Yeah, according to Stanford, now that is the correct way. So that just remind me of uh, the Cultural Revolution that there is only one correct way of uh, thinking, of talking, and if you don't do it, you're getting into trouble. So I just noticed. So when the language started changing and people announced that you know from here on out we're calling X Y, mm-hmm. we're calling I don't know. Peking, Beijing, or the Orient Asia, or whatever, the blind, visually impaired, that reminded you of the Cultural Revolution. A little bit. I'm just saying, if you ask me what I noticed, yeah. that was something I noticed. Because I noticed later, you can't say that. You can't, there's so many things you can't say, or you have to say it differently. And who tell you? The authority tell you. That's the correct way of saying, saying things, and that's the correct way of basically thinking. Okay, but still, I did not lose my uh, sleep over those things, and until later. And uh, um, in my book, I did say, Trent Law probably is the thing, the person that came to my mind that I can really pin down. The moment I really say, this kind of really like cultural revolution. I don't even know the story, whatever. He was called a racist because he said something. I said, that really sounds like cultural revolution. You say something and your life is over. Trent Lott was a Republican senator from Mississippi who went to the funeral of the longest serving Republican senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, and praised him at his funeral. And for that, he was... Forced to resign, right? Yes. Yeah. And that is that really made an impression on me. I think that's just like Cultural Revolution. And uh, But things get from uh, bad to worse. And it, it was way before 2020 that I know that things is really, really going wrong. Because in the workplace, I was uh, uh, invited to be a member of DNI. Back then, it's DNI, um, Diversity and Inclusion yes. Council. And I noticed every member is has identity there. And I just realized... This is not really about uh, uh, making people work together, help people work together. It's more like a, um, political identity. Yes. And uh, but things, you know, got so much bad in the uh, uh, 2020. When I saw the Antifa and the BMN burning our cities, I said, "This is no longer some kind of troubling sign here. There, this is a full." Blowing Marxist revolution. This is exactly what I noticed uh, or what I witnessed during the Cultural Revolution. So I said, I got to do something. I have to get involved one way or the other. And that's the end of uh, uh, 2020. I got involved with the Loudoun Republican, um, Loudoun County Republican Committee. And uh, after that, and uh, we got emails, you know, ask us to go to school board and uh, I was never, never involved politically to go and, and give a public speech. It was just intimidating to me. And, but I got so much support from uh, the members say, I said, I don't even have children in school at that time. They said, it doesn't matter. We're all um, taxpayers. And then you should have, uh, go there and, and voice your, uh, your opinion. So I said, okay, okay. I've, I've been very alarmed about what's going on in our school. You are now teaching, training our children to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. Uh, growing up in Mao's China, all this seemed very familiar. 
the uh, communist regime used the same critical theory to divide people. The only difference is they use class instead of race. And back then, you know, you have to wear a mask. I said, thank God, I have to wear a mask and that cover, you know, hide myself. So I went there and I did that. And I have no clue. I have no clue what happened after that. Well, I, ha- I have to say one of the, the features, just as a foreigner reading about it, of the Cultural Revolution that's always struck with me, is the mass hysteria, mm-hmm. rational people becoming irrational, mm-hmm. people going crazy, getting caught up in this frenzy and really believing things that are, that are absurd. I want to show you a piece of tape um, from the United States. This is after George Floyd's uh, drug overdose death. Um, and <clears throat> this is a table of affluent white ladies who have paid money to be told they're racist. And I just want to get your view of this. Watch this. Actually, Margaret, you didn't say yours. What? Your racist thing. Thing that you've done. Thought about or done. You have something inside of you that's not quite, like, that's racist. So you must have, you must have examples in your own life. I also work in environmental engineering. I have absolutely no people of color or minimal people of color, possibly the exclusion being slightly Hispanic. Saira doesn't like her attitudes. I can say a racist thing you've done because it just happened. When you just talked to me the way you just did, this is how white women talk to us all the time. These are microaggressions. When I say the exact same thing to my white girlfriend who says the same exact thing. I don't care if you talk to everybody like that. The way you just spoke to me was straight up white supremacy. You actually just answered with racism. White supremacy is said to be hidden in innocuous phrases and banal behavior. The smallest things could be considered racist. It's enough that a person from a minority group feels insulted. Absolutely. Sounding terribly white. I don't know that I was all that racist to start with, but I also would be more aware or hyper aware of my thoughts or reactions to circumstances that would be racist. So here we have privileged white ladies being barked at by even more privileged non-white ladies about their sins, and the white ladies are loving it. Like, what is that? That's a struggle session. Yeah. And that's something that everyone has to go through. In the, during the Cultural Revolution, in, in the very beginning, that was those in power that was taken down by the Red Guards. They were struggled against in the so-called struggle session. That was brutal. Some of them were killed right there in the public trial. But everyone has to go through the gentler form of struggle session, and that's called criticism, and self-criticism. So as kids, we will have that kind of a struggle session every week. And we will sit together and after, you know, referring some of the mouse quotes and we will uh, criticize self, you start with yourself and you would say, and I did this and that not quite up to the requirement by mouse instruction. And, uh, and, and I still have this bourgeois influence in me and uh, and then everyone will join and say, yes, you're right. You did this and this that day. You said this is this that day. And then we go around. So we struggle against others and we're against ourselves. So to get rid of every little incorrect thoughts from our mind. It, that's what it is. So China is, I mean, overwhelmingly Han Chinese. So you're, you're not going to have racial lines in a country that's 
got one race. Um, but if you take the race stuff out, white supremacy, it, it's identical, right? Identity politics. That's exactly what it is. In China, it started with class. Yes. And they divide the whole population into two classes, red class and the black class. And you can figure out pretty much what it means. Red, uh, the correct class, and the black is the incorrect class. Those are the uh, property owners, landlords, or people with bourgeois uh, worldview. They're all black class. So they are the enemy of the state. We all look alike, right? But that's how China was divided uh, by Mao. And I'm talking about identity. It's not something, you, you know, you say, oh, okay, I'm black class. No, you are black class, and that is your identity. And that is required in every government document. Just like here, race, you have to figure out, you, you have to fill out what your race, uh, what your race is. There, you have to fill out what your class is. And then you pass it down to your children and your children's children, and you will forever be the enemy of the state. And here, we, ha- we still have class. You know, both Bernie Sanders still talk about 1% versus 99%. Yes. But race is the most potent way to divide America. And that's just exactly the same thing that happened in China. What, maybe another similarity is that the people who are screaming about privilege themselves have the most privilege. Right. I mean, yeah. so the, the people leading the struggle sections were obviously more privileged than the people being interrogated. Correct. It's in the revolution. Most of the revolution, you can see who started. It's usually the elite. Yes. Mao was from a rich family. Yes. Yeah. All his comrades are from rich family. Only people from rich family had the time to entertain how to start a revolution. <laughs> exactly the same. And then they turned the people against the other elite. And that is always the case because they want people fight against each other and that's how they control them. So as, as you're starting to notice these things, do you tell your husband who's American, your children who are born here, your friends who are American, do you say, wow, this looks like what I grew up with? Do you tell anybody that? That is a, a mistake that I've made. That for a long, long time, I never really talk much about my past. Yes. Because I want to forget it myself. I get I, it. It's yeah. unpleasant. It's awful. And uh, no, I haven't uh, shared a lot of the stories with my family and uh, with my colleagues. A lot of them are like, oh, she had such an interesting story. Because it's awful things that you want to forget. Yes. And that is the mistake that I made, and that is the mistake the conservative made. They never really uh, fight for uh, the uh, schools to teach the horror of communism. People don't know. People have no idea. And uh, when I went to that school board and gave him that speech, I think a lot of them have probably the first time heard such a thing as cultural revolution. Yes. That's why, that's I say, when we... People like me who live through communism, we saw through it right away. The Americans have no clue. That's why they don't realize what was happening here in 2020 and what's happening now is communist takeover. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It is communist takeover. When you say that to Americans, how do they respond? I think more and more started to uh, see it. 
But many told me they never, they don't know anything about Cultural Revolution. They know very little about communism. They thought communism was defeated. Burning war was torn down. It's over. And uh, I think that's the mistake the conservative made. Tell us about your speech at, at the Loudoun event. It's only one minute. And uh, um, so the only thing I can say is that what's happening in our school and how you push the CRT just to me is just the repeat of the Cultural Revolution. During the Cultural Revolution, I witnessed students and teachers again turn against each other. We changed school names to be politically correct. Um, we were taught to denounce our heritage. The Red Guards destroy anything that is not communist. Old uh, statues, books, and anything else. <clears throat> we are also encouraged to report on each other, just like the uh, Student Equity Ambassador Program and the Bias Reporting System. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese Communist, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The critical race theory has its roots in cultural Marxism. It should have no place in our schools. What kind of response did you get? Well, people are proud, and then my minute was over, and I was just, you know, I really, I just left the meeting, and uh, because I took time off my work, I have to go back and make up the time. So I thought everyone knew it. Cultural revolution, who doesn't? Well, then I got a course in later, and people want to interview, and I realized, my God, people just don't know. Americans do not know. Why, and why, why don't you think, why don't they know? I think it's on purpose. That is absolutely, to me, I'm convinced it's on purpose. They do not want to teach communism. And they do not teach the horror or the history of communism. Because those are in control. They are Marxists. They want to use the same tactics to gain power. That's why it's not taught. It's not taught at all. And as later uh, from my uh, Twitter uh, follower, and uh, I, I see comments like, in school, we learned slavery. And everyone knows slavery. Everyone knows uh, Nazi Germany. We never taught communism. And that's why people don't know what's going on today. Yeah, because that history has been withheld from them. Yes. Um, do you notice similarities in between uh, Mao's attempt to destroy Chinese culture, history, language, and our government's attempt to, to hide our history and change our history, lie about our history to the population. That's exactly the same thing. History is so important. And as we know that uh, whoever control uh, the present, control the past. And whoever control the past, control the future. That's what uh, um, CCP did when they took over China in 1949. They totally took over the uh, educational system. They remade the curriculum, but what they really put their energy and the focus on is to rewrite history. Yeah. So the history that I learned, and even today I have to get rid of uh, all this misinformation that I received as a, as a schoolgirl and later in college, all uh, uh, fictional, absolutely fictional. 
And that, but that's how they control you. And you believe, just as I said earlier, you believe that communists, uh, the CCP is our savior. Mao is our savior to, uh, to, to save us, to liberate us. Now we heard that word too, right? To liberate us from the oppression of those, uh, you know, impressionism, uh, imperialism, uh, uh, feudalism and capitalism. And you believe it. And people ask me, um, did you question? I said, how could I question? I was told one thing. I have no access to other information. I could not think. Thinking, I think, in, uh, uh, requires you know something. You have information. You have different sources of information. And hopefully you can, you know, uh, go through them and come up with your own uh, conclusion. That's critical thinking, right? When you have only one information, you can't think. I can yes. only think one way. That's mouse way. That's the correct way. And I have been like that for a long time. Some people will say that they see through things during the culture of not me. I'm totally into it. I'm totally accept everything I was told. No matter how absurd it, it was, I accept it. Because party can't be wrong. Mao can't be wrong. You've seen the, the whole cycle. I mean, you're born 10 years after the communist revolution. And you, you know, you, you watched the whole cycle of it. Um, so given that, where do you think things are going in this country right now? Where are we in that progression? People ask me that a lot. You know, it, it is really, really decades in the making in America after the, uh, um, the 60s, uh, when the Marxists took over all universities. They have been creating generations, not just one generation, generations of Marxists or people who absolutely um, follow that those ideologies. Now they are in our institutions, in every institutions, including educational system, corporations, uh, government, and even our military. It is everywhere. So I always say that the infiltration of uh, communism is complete in this country. And uh, so it is, it is really, really, we're in dire situation. So what do we do? Well, we have to start from uh, educating people and to wake people up by telling them history, by telling them that what's going on here is nothing new. It happened before, not that long ago. It happened to me 50 years ago. The witness, the survivors are still here trying to tell American people this is communist revolution. And the goal is to destroy this country. And the goal is for uh, the globalists, I always say globalists, to take power. Can it be stopped? It has to be stopped. So we have to wake people up, get involved. And uh, sometimes I feel so, um, just feel like uh, there's no hope. But many times I do feel like there's a great hope. I have been invited to talk to so many people around the country, and I met people who are parents who never involved politically, just like me, but they are involved now. They're fighting. They're fighting in the trenches. And uh, so I say there's a hope. There's a great hope. And uh, we can't just fight because we kind of figure we might win. To me, we have to fight because we believe in it. And what I believe in is America. And so there's no choice but to fight. People who grew up in this country, most I know, uh, assume 
um, that it can never get too out of control here. Yes, there's a revolution going on. We're living through it right now. But because it's America, that revolution will never entail the killing of a lot of people. All revolutions end up killing a lot of people, but ours won't somehow. What do you think? Just looking out on the streets and the campus today, look at those people who have no empathy because their empathy is uh, uh, guided by the, uh, the ideology. That ideology is Marxist ideology about oppressors and oppressed. The worldview is looking everything in terms of who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. And that is absolutely communist worldview. And for those who are oppressed, anything they do to the oppress uh, or the oppressor is justified. That includes murder, um, kidnap, and raping. This is all justified, just like the Cultural Revolution. And that's what's happening in today's America. Those are the absolute result of decades of indoctrination. So people with no empathy will kill. Will kill. And today they're just out there accepting, justifying, and celebrating violence. It's only a short step away from committing violence. Those kids in China that kill their, uh, their principal, their teachers, they're not monsters. They're not. They were... Actually, most of them were from uh, very prestigious uh, universities and uh, and high schools. You know, I mean, the parallels are unbelievable. Unbelievable, and they. So killed. the Chinese Harvard was more radical than the Chinese HVAC repair absolutely. school. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The Cultural Revolution started in Tsinghua and the Beijing University, the top of the top, and uh, those the Red Guards that committed murders were the best of the best, supposedly, and then they kill. And there's one, one short step that we'll see this happen if we don't stop it. Um, when you say that, do people take you seriously, do you think, in this country? Do they believe you? I think the people who listen to me, yes, they believe me. And, and that's why I think it's, I play a very, very important role because I'm telling people not something I just learned from books or just I did some research. It is from my lived experience using the left uh, terminology. I lived through it. I saw it. And absolutely, this can happen here. And this will if we don't stop it. So, but our system was supposed to, we were taught growing up that our system would never allow something like this to happen because it's a democracy mm -hmm. and the people are in charge and you can vote them out if you don't like them. I know, I know. What do yeah, you think of that? I love what uh, uh, John Adams said. Our system, our constitution is made for moral and the religious people, and it won't work for any other. And the constitution is still there. The rule of law is still there. But the people have changed. And that is what's happening today. We are dealing with Marxist and communist who control our institution. And so they can use this uh, democratic process and carry out their agenda and destroy everything on the path. So the process itself is irrelevant. It depends on the intent of the people. Yeah. And people have changed. The people have really changed. Why do you think that? Why do you think they've changed? An indoctrination. Decades. And just, just think about it. From the 60s, it's several decades. That's the power of indoctrination. 
That's why I always tell people, the only way for us to win the war is is uh, to uh, get our school back, get our university back, and of course media, because those are the institutions that are um, shaping people's mind, and they are all in the hands of Marxists. What motivates Marxists? Power. Power. When you think that way, everything's easier to see. I did not know why Mao would uh, just launch this revolution that destroyed everything, destroyed people's lives, my life, and never Power. Power. He wants to launch the Cultural Revolution because he wants to have absolute power, and he did. In the process, he become not just the supreme leader, he become our god. In China today, are average people aware that the Cultural Revolution happened? Are they upset about it? Do they talk about it? That is a great question. I think it's so important for people to understand. People in power, they want to control history and they want to uh, erase inconvenient history. Yes. And that's exactly what happened in China. Young people were not taught Cultural Revolution. And uh, when they uh, talk about it, they were told that was the anti-corruption campaign. That's it. And the young people, many of them never heard about the Tiananmen massacre because it was not in the history book, not taught, forgotten. All the history of the atrocities by the CCP were not taught to the new generation. Is it, I mean, if, It's not uh, very reassuring that the political party that killed tens of millions of people is still in power. Absolutely. (laughs) Because they control the history. Yeah. You don't know. And young people don't know and old people dare not to talk about it. And that's happening here. We don't know history. People who know, a lot of them don't want to talk about it. My last question to you. You survived all of this, this this first revolution. What advice would you give to Americans for how to respond to our revolution right now happening in this country? I would say you understand what's going on. Only when you understand what's going on, you can fight back. Otherwise, you can't fight something you don't understand. Yes. And it's not some kind of crazy kind of a Democrats that they, they just do some crazy things. No. This is absolutely a full-blown communist revolution. And the goal is very simple. It's just one, destroy this country so some people can have total control of power. So it has nothing to do with improving anybody's life. No. And if you want to, if you want to save this country and save it for your children and your children's children, you have to get involved. You have to fight back as your life depends on it. With that, Shijin Van Fleet, thank you very much. Thank you. And congratulations on this book. Thank you. Horrifying as it is. It is. Well, that was a stark rendering of the 3D current affairs. This Celeste Solem interview with Chad Riley paints an entirely different reality. This is their discussion of the events that easily lead to the realization we are in a spiritual war. Both individuals look to Christianity to find a way to win. I am finding more and more truth-tellers who are profoundly devoted to Jesus. While I want their stories told, I will remind us all that there are many ways to interpret the spiritual realms. So here is Celeste Solemn and Chad Riley. 
Hi, this is Celeste with the Celestial Report. And today I am going, we're going to do the woo woo show, uh, with Chad Riley, who is a film producer. Do you write books also, Chad? I have not written just- anything yet, but uh, I've got enough material. I could probably write a couple of books right now. So he just, uh, completed and has a film out that you can find on VMO which is super interesting and it's skinwalker and stranger things. And so um, this is Chad Riley uh, sitting next to me and we're going to have a, a conversation about the supernatural, the paranormal, what got him started down this uh, track and lots of good things. So welcome to the show. Welcome to Celestial Report, Chad. Hi, Celeste. It's good to see you again. I know the last time we saw one another was at the uh, True Legends Conference when you came up and uh, gave you a copy of the Hollow Earth Chronicles as well as uh, Higher Entities. But yeah, this this new film of mine, Skinwalkers and Stranger Things of the Unseen Realm, this is my first solo project. So it uh, took me about a year and a half, 480 pages of notes condensed down into an 88-page script, and uh, it's two hours and 34 minutes long, so... I'm hoping that it's going to bless a lot of people's lives. I think it will. I mean, it was such an excellent documentary. And how did you choose the name of the title? Well, I wanted it to uh, have some reference to some of the material that will be covered in the book. But I also uh, did want to hit on specific keywords that I know are pretty hot topics. And being that uh, the, the main bulk of the research had to do with Skinwalker Ranch, was what I started out initially uh, researching to put together a documentary. It quickly led into all sorts of different things. and um, It uh, tied in with a lot of Mike Heiser's research about the unseen realm and even got into a TV show that a lot of people are very um, excited about called Stranger Things, which originally was uh, called Montauk by the Duffer Brothers. So I've got some interesting inside information that you might be interested that you can feel free to pass along as you talk with different folks in different interviews. So I was in a military conference um, in 2018 for the unveiling of the transhumanism agenda um, in the different branches of the military. And from the podium, they said if they were speaking directly to the commanders and they said, if you want to prepare your troops for what they are going to see and experience in the days to come, uh, have them watch stranger things. Well, I had never watched stranger things or really even heard of heard of it because I'm too busy doing real life research, but that caught my ear. And I go, if the commanders are telling the troops that this is what they're going to see and experience, I better check it out. So I did check it out. And what I found is, yes, that is in fact true, because of course, they're not going to train the troops from a biblical perspective. But this is kind of like a um, parable, kind of, uh, in a way of, if if you were going to do the Bible and uh, but you were talking to people that would not pick up a Bible it is an excellent way to prepare people for the 
end days, whatever you want to call these days that we're living now. And so I thought you might be interested in that. That is interesting. Be very interested in hearing more about that later on privately for sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very interesting. So I know that people have been following Skinwalker Ranch for a long time. As a matter of fact, I just watched a documentary. I think it was on Amazon Prime, uh, I think, um, before yours, before I saw yours about, uh, I think it was like two seasons and they did different projects like drilling a hole in a, a pit and just the different paranormal f- phenomena that goes on there. So how long have you been tracking the Skinwalker story and any new insights? I've been fascinated with the, the whole idea of the, the ranch for a very long time. And um, the it was a book done by George Knapp as well as, um, goodness, I can't think of the other gentleman's name, but it's called uh, The Hunt for the Skinwalker. And in that book, they talked about the family that previously owned the ranch for almost uh, 60 years and that they sold it to a uh, ranching couple by the name of Bre- uh, not Bradshaw, but uh, Sherman's the Terry and his wife, uh, Terry Sherman and his wife that uh, bought the ranch and they only owned it for about 18 months because quickly after they took over ownership of the ranch and brought their cattle onto the ranch, uh, bizarre, weird things started happening like these gigantic wolf creatures that would appear out of nowhere. And I'm, we're not talking like a normal sized wolf. We're talking something almost as big as a moose that uh, would come out there and roam around their pro- uh, property. And um, it, uh, they had some very hairy encounters with not just those those kinds of entities, but even um, ones that were using cloaking technology, much like the movie Predator. Um, there was a gentleman, once uh, it finally came to light, that uh, there was a lot of paranormal stuff going on out there. Like one day, Terry and his wife were uh, tagging baby calves, and they had just tagged this one baby calf and had gone maybe about 45 minutes walking uh, off to the distance and uh, their dog kept carrying on and like something something really wrong so the the dog wouldn't relent or calm down so they started walking back in the direction of the baby calf that they had just tagged and as they got closer they saw the mother limping with her leg dragging one of her legs and had some sort of injury to her leg but the baby calf had been completely stripped of all meat it was literally just the bones and a little bit of muscle tissue holding the bones together and it was completely splayed out on the ground and they were just you know completely mortified but at the same time they just couldn't believe what they were seeing because there was no blood on the ground whatsoever um no Uh, predatory marks of like chewing, biting or anything like that. And that this could have occurred in that little amount of time and left no, you know, no, no blood, no, no, nothing there that it just, they, they couldn't. So immediately, you know, they're, they were on high alert of a lot of things that are going on. The, the, the Terry kept seeing windows opening in the sky at nighttime when he would be sitting outside and it would be nighttime where he was at. But when this window would appear, in the sky, it was daytime on the other side, and he would see craft flying out of that uh, window or portal, whatever you want to call it, and he would also see him flying into it as well. 
and he just couldn't make heads or tails. But when uh, this one gentleman had found out, he came out there to the property and asked if he could go out and meditate or pray on the property. So they took him down to Homestead 2. And while he was sitting there in this yoga position with his hands out like this, and he was either meditating or praying or something, he kept hearing a cowbell. And he finally, you know, that triggered something. He was like, "That's this is not normal. He's like, there's none of our cows have bells or none of our animals have bells on them. So he's like, what is that sound? And then he saw something breaking across the tree line and running between the trees. And he said, whatever it was, it looked like a heat mirage and pixelated it it didn't look normal and finally whatever it was broke from the tree line ran straight up to the gentleman that was down on the ground praying or meditating and it went right over him and it just let out the loudest roar scream whatever you want to call it but he said it was louder than a lion a bear and it made this guy jump from a sitting position about six feet backwards and whenever they rushed over to check on him this thing ran back off into the distance but he said it was moving at incredible speeds. He, he said if he had to guesstimate how fast it was moving, he said probably anywhere between uh, 25 to 30 miles per hour. And it was running. It was bipedal. Um, but uh, they were watching a movie on television um, and on cable TV, and it was the movie Predator. And as soon as they saw the creature running around, that it was camouflaged, both him and his son both pointed at the screen. They're like, that's it. That's what we saw that's that was it so there's all sorts of different things going on and the tv show does not really touch on a lot of this stuff that's actually going on out there if, if a lot of people really knew what was going on out there i think they'd be a little more freaked out about the uh, the the whole uh, skinwalker ranch and and on top of that that's only one location it's like there's about five different ranches out there that all have the same thing going on out there so you got Blind Frog, you got Moon Shadow, you got Skinwalker Ranch, you got Stardust, and um, see Bradshaw, Stardust, Skinwalker, Moon Shadow, and Blind Frog. So yeah, you got all five of those out there, all pretty much the same thing. But here's the one thing that a lot of people don't know is that when Robert Bigelow bought um, Skinwalker Ranch from the Shermans, he bought another ranch. One of those ranches as well. He bought uh, Bradshaw Ranch, so he got he owned both Skinwalker and Bradshaw Ranch for almost a decade, and owned them both at the same time. And then when he got rid of Skinwalker Ranch, he also sold Bradshaw Ranch. And Travis Taylor, who is one of the people that you see on the Skinwalker show out there, at a private luncheon that he uh, attended, where people pay to go sit and talk with him and eat lunch with him. Uh, there was an individual there that was recording this interaction and Travis Taylor quite candidly said that the reason that Bigelow got rid of the ranch was he believed that it killed his wife. Yeah. And I want to go back to the portals for a minute. I'm sorry to hear about the loss of his wife. Um, So we were preparing at the government for Y2K I can't remember if this is two years before Y2K or one year before Y2K. I think probably one year before. But, I mean, I don't remember all the details because it was Friday afternoon. You know how Friday afternoons are. And all you want to do is it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) You want to just go home and go go have your weekend, you know. And 
So I did not think that I would be seeing anything spectacular. So for whatever reason, there was a guy that came from Microsoft. He was very high up. And so the whole purpose of Y2K was to get all computers to and sensors to talk with one another. So he, I don't know how he did it. Like I said, I was kind of in the back. There was a crowd <laughs> all huddled around the computer. And somehow he would touch various points on the desktop and you, it literally took you into different dimensions and portals. And you're like going, I mean, at that point, I'm just like, you know, I'm just like, I don't really understand. Am I a tech guru? No. Um, but that scared the heck out of me because he knew right where, like if any one of us knew, or maybe he had a chip in his hand, I, I have no idea how, but he would go to certain places on the desktop and it just, all of a sudden portals and doors, it, it was portals opened. And it was truly terrifying. And you, I learned to have a healthy respect. And it made me want to distance myself from just throwing myself at the internet. Like so many people, <clears throat> if they knew it could steal your soul and it could drag you through this technological portal, they might think twice about doing everything, you know, that they do with uh, all online and on the internet, it really did scare the heck out of me. Um, and I think that predator thing, so they're doing um, a lot with graphene and graphene plays with the light. And so they are putting graphene into creatures They're putting graphene to, into humans. And depending on the light, if they want it to go you to be cloak if they want chad to be the invisible man they just dose you with some nanoparticles of graphene and it will the light will play and you'll basically be invisible and i would think that they've been playing with that technology both in their craft and also with the animals for some time now well, they've also, the uh, the most recent UAP that they showed that looks some sort of like a drone, the, the one that they were referring to as jellyfish, that actually was flying over a U.S. military base when they were tracking that. And they said that while they were tracking it, it literally kept shifting in and out of visual, uh, the visual range. So it was literally cloaking itself at different times. Uh, and like I said, the only reason they know it was doing that was because of the FLIR technology that they were using to track it. Yeah, it is pretty interesting once you get into the whole technology of that, which I've been writing about for some time now. So in your research um, for making your film, how long did that research project take? I spent about a year and a half uh, assembling all the uh, information together, uh, coalesced into about 480 pages of notes. And then I took that and I crammed it down to about an 88 page script. So needless to say, there was a lot of stuff that uh, didn't quite make it in there. If I had truly made it exactly the way I wanted to, it would have been probably close to about eight or 10 hours long. So I had to settle for two hours and 34 minutes and, 
Uh, a lot of people that have watched it, they said that um, it's it's little, it's it's not very uncomfortable, but they were like, you got so much information jam-packed in there that I had to go back and watch it about four or five times. There was just too much information in there. And I've had yeah. a few people tell me it's almost academic level as well. It is academic level, I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, something that I'm considering myself, so I'm just throwing it out there. Um, I'm going to start doing, so my webinars are typically two to three hours and they're extremely dense and people do the same thing. They have to look over it. But pe many people are losing um, the ability to sit for that long and to use their brains for that long. So I think what I'm going to do is do it in about 20 minute segments, do the same amount that I want. So you could have had your 10 hours, but break it up into 20 minute segments. And so the people would either pay for by the segment or for the whole entire series. And then you just roll them out like once a week or twice a week, whatever. And that way, and what I'm finding, I just went to these little snippets because a lot of times the stuff technology that I'm talking about, and I'm talking to really intelligent people and it just kind of goes over their head. You get the deer in the headlights look. And it's kind of defeating the purpose. So I started to uh, just recently do these one to three minute snippets on just a little fraction, a little something of the technology. And people are really engaging. They are loving it. So you give them a little bit of concept so that when you do do a big, a big presentation, they kind of have a foundation. Um, you know, you're not blindsiding them. <laughs> So uh, it might be something that you might want to try and play with. I've played with it with great success. I am getting a lot of engagement. People just say, I, I love this, the smaller because, and then it makes them feel like it's not so threatening. It's not, I mean, it's dangerous or interesting, but it's not overwhelming that they come to despair or hopelessness or, things like that. So I don't and know. That was, that was the whole thing about the film is that I wanted to show and take people, you know, from A to Z and show them that just how much all this stuff is completely connected, but at the same time that it's completely, you know, entrenched in the, the demonic and satanic and that, you know, there is hope. And that's why towards the end of the film, you know, I get into start getting into some of the scriptures and we start uh, showing Joe Jordan talking about how people were reaching out to him and asking, you know, can you help me? Will this, will this help me? Will it work for me like it did for them? And he said, absolutely. It's so scientifically repeatable that, you know, anyone who calls out in the name of Jesus, not only does it stop, but if they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it stops permanently. It's completely, it never picks up ever again. Absolutely. So are you, do you know who Dan Duvall is? I know who Dan Duvall is. Uh, I know that he's worked with Justin in the past on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. So I'm familiar with, with him. I don't know him personally or anything. Well, he wrote a book, uh, Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. And when I was doing my synthetic biology webinar, um, I was really at like, what hope can I, I mean, I, I, it was packed full of scripture, but still it was a very, uh, stark and startling, um, topic uh, that we are literally being changed and they want us to be just 
uh, shells that they can put, insert uh, soft robotics, disembodied spirits, demon, demons. And so Dan has put this book out called Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth. And I tell you, there's he's got prayers for uh, bloodlines and, you know, in-laws, outlaws. <laughs> You know, we can't always like choose our blood because it is, you know, uh, but maybe there are some things in your blood that need to be cleansed. So he's got prayers for that. You can extricate the technology that they're throwing at us. Super great prayers on that. Some people say, well, I don't think it really all applies to me. You have to be careful in that way because you want to make sure that there's no demons hiding, you know, if there's something that needs to be cleansed in your life, but also on the other side, um, it, you can customize it. There's no, you know, nothing to say that maybe the Holy Spirit has given you a particular add on or take this out, but put this one in that's more applicable in your situation. So I, things like tinnitus, all sorts of things that are dealing with paranormal, um, there's prayers uh, about that. So it's a pretty good reference. Yeah. And also we're, you know, the Bible tells us to pray and sanctify our food. Um, the whole reason, I mean, did they know that 2000 years ago, they were going to be genetically modifying the food that we're going to be eating starting all the way back in the early nineties. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I totally believe that power, the power of prayer that can counteract a lot of this stuff that's being used against us. Uh, I mean, they've weaponized our food, our water supply, just about everything, even the air that we breathe. And that's also affecting the soil that everything grows in. So, yeah, you totally need to be aware of this and you totally need to be mindful of it and totally need to be praying over everything. Yeah, but I don't think this is the first time. I think that during Genesis 6, this also happened. So I think we're just and maybe even in the pre-Adamic. I don't know if you believe in pre-Adamic, but I believe in pre-Adamic. So, I mean, this could have happened. I know for sure Genesis 6, but, you know, there's megalithic structures and those civilizations have all but vanished across the face of the earth. And yet they were had tremendous technology and skills. Um, when I was young, my dad worked for naval warfare and um, we had a team of archaeologists. This was the late 50s. And I was sitting at their feet. I was young. And um, they were talking about taking out computers. I mean, in the 50s, computers that used to, you know, in those days, it was whole rooms, if people even knew what a computer was. Uh, batteries, lighting, advanced technology from ancient civilizations. And I think I we were, as the kids, we were scooted out when it got to the classified information. Well, the, the, uh, the cell phone came out in 1947, as well as the transistor. And uh, even, what is it, uh, Bob Lazar, who recently was on the Joe Rogan podcast, he said that out of the nine craft that they had out there at S4 Area 51, he said one of those craft was actually recovered at an archaeological dig. He said he didn't know exactly when or where, but he said it was ancient. He goes, it wasn't just old, it was ancient. That was his words. So... Yeah, that doesn't surprise me because I was just sitting there riveted and it actually inspired me to do archaeology. So I did archaeology in Israel and Qumran and it was, I loved it. I loved it. I wish I could do it again. I wish it was a safer world and things are not as intense as they are. Uh, it's not a really safe 
time to travel these days. Although some there's some brave, brave souls that do it. So what do you think in your in this the Skinwalkers um, movie? What was the most shocking discovery that you made that kind of like rocked your world? Well, one of the main areas of focus that I was looking into was the uh, hitchhiker phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon when people go out to the the ranch itself. It doesn't affect you personally if you go out to the ranch but when you leave the, the, the ranch and it, it's like a virus, it spreads like a virus through you, your family, your friends, loved ones, and so on. And you never know exactly how it's going to spread. So like, say, if, um, you know, say me and you are related that uh, you live somewhere and we're just, you know, relation. But I go out there. Well, it might not affect anybody directly towards me but it will it could affect you because you're related to me and um, there's no distance involved whatsoever you never know exactly how far out it's going to reach but like Axelrod who was one of the characters in the book he went out there for one day he was out there for one day he left and it not only spread back to his family who lived clear across the United States but it also spread through co-workers that he worked in the office with and uh, even some of their family friends, like his son's uh, friends, it was affecting them as well. Um, the wife said that she saw an eight foot tall uh, cryptid in the backyard that looked like a, a you know, dog man, werewolf, whatever you want to call it. But it was eight feet tall, standing uh, backed up against the tree with its arms crossed like this. And it was just staring at her. And after a couple of minutes, it finally just put its hands down and it just walked off on two legs and she didn't say anything because she wasn't sure if she just imagined that, you know, didn't want to freak her kids out or anything like that. But uh, two days later, the kids just happened to be uh, walking by the back door and they saw the same creature standing out there staring at them. And, of course, they're freaking out. And after a few minutes, it turned and took off running down the street on two feet or two legs, I should say. So, I mean, just all sorts of things. The other friends uh, of the two kids were seeing like orbs flying around in their bedrooms, uh, shadow people in their houses, uh, UFOs flying around outside, just all sorts of bizarre things. And that's the thing about the hitchhiker phenomenon. You never know what you're going to get. It, it's, it could be a you know, multitude of things. And um, so looking into that, that people are experiencing this, if they go out to Skinwalker Ranch and then bring it back to their families or it attaches to them and it spreads out to their family and friends. Come to find out, the earliest case that I could find of a situation like this was actually Kenneth Arnold, who saw the nine craft flying over Mount Rainier, Washington. Uh, in his book, he actually wrote that after he saw those nine craft, and this is the guy that coined the term flying saucers. You know, when they asked him, they said, what did you see? He said, it looked like uh, saucers skipping upon a pond, and therefore we got the term flying saucers. So after he sees these nine craft, he starts having poltergeist activity in, in the, the Arnold home. And even his daughter has gone on multiple interviews and said that the, the same thing, that there was all sorts of poltergeist activity taking place in their home after he saw these nine craft. And even gets even crazier because uh, apparently Kenneth Arnold and Jack Parsons were flying buddies. That's another thing that a lot of people have never heard of or don't know much about. So that one kind of you know took me back when I found that out. 
and that they had a mutual friend that lived in Roswell named Robert Goddard, who was also an early pioneer in the rocketry technology and had also previously worked in the same area that Parsons and his suicide squad worked at at Devil's Gate Dam. So that was another interesting little fact. But um, then I also found out another early pioneer of the um, hitchhiker phenomenon was uh, Yuri Geller. When he was introduced to the SRI, the the uh, back of the early remote viewing program, they had uh, wanted to know more about how he was able to use psychokinetic powers to bend spoons and different things like that. Plus, he was also able to remote view, which they were just taken aback how many things this guy could do. And when the scientists were investigating him and trying to, you know, monitor everything that things that were going on around him while he was doing his thing, they themselves encountered the hitchhiker phenomenon. They started seeing bizarre things in their homes, outside their homes, um, weird cryptids, uh, shadow people, orbs, um, just all sorts of bizarre stuff. So like I said, there's something that, that all this stuff is completely interconnected. It doesn't matter if it's remote viewing, if it's these geographical locations where the veil is thin and there's all this supernatural stuff going on or even encountering UFOs themselves, like actual UFO encounters or even encounters with aliens themselves. So it's showing that these are all in the same, they're under the same umbrella. They're all attached, connected. Some of you who ever, um, in your research, did you ever look at advanced weaponry such as a memetic mind virus? I have not looked at that, but uh, one of the things that Ray Boucher kept talking about was that they were using, uh, there was, I can't remember the exact name of it right now, um, but there was some sort of technology that they were using that was like, they referred to it as mind weapons. And I can't remember what the, the terminology was right off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up and tell you what it is. So there's um, a book. Um, he used to work for DARPA and CIA and, you know, all your favorite <laughs> characters, technological characters. And he wrote a book called Soul Catcher. And so um, it he goes through the different um, technologies and one of those is a mimetic mind virus. And that when they talk about the transmissibility of like the COVID with that construct, mm-hmm. originally, I mean, I knew that there was a payload in it. I did not know. I gave out a bunch of like 10 different hypotheses of what the payload could be. I said it could be mix or ranch, could be any of them. Well, I just discovered, getting ready for my next webinar, that it is actually a um, computer virus code, a bad malicious code. And it can do many things that you're talking about. So I would really look that up and that it is transmissible. And it doesn't, like you said, you know, your brother could be living in Brazil and you have the experience, but it transmits to him and or people at work. And it's very real. I think the the name that I was trying to remember just now, I still haven't found it. But if I remember correctly, I think it was called Psychotronic Weapons. Yeah, that it's basically in the psychotronic weaponry. Okay. But it, it definitely, it's 
a subset of psychotronic weapons. Um, so I think you'll find the research very interesting. And if I were you, I'd get the book. It is, you can get it on Amazon, um, probably other places too. It's well worth it because it gives most of the weaponry that the government is using clandestinely is, um, has biblical names like Edom, Adam, just Christ, um, all sorts of all. And, but we think that when they use the powers that be, say Christ or something, whatever word they're using, um, that it, that it's the biblical, but it's not. Um, but I do know about the psychotronic weapons that, that, that paperwork that Ray Boucher reached out and sent me because, you know, he was in contact with, um, Linda Moulton Howe, and they were the ones that were dealing. I know you probably heard the term Collins Elite. That wasn't the name that this group went by, but it's what a lot of people will refer to them as, as the Collins Elite. They were actually referred to as the writers, and these were people that worked within the Pentagon. And they said that um, they had witnessed that they were performing satanic rituals, at not only military bases, but like, you know, a lot of these government agencies as well. And that not only were they successful, they were making contact with entities that were literally coming into this dimension and they were getting something out of it. They were, they were not only getting technology, but they were getting power, some sort of power that they were tapping into as well. And that really freaked them out. So, like I said, when they approached Ray Boucher, they approached him, one, because he worked for MUFON, but the other was because he was an actual pastor. And these two gentlemen were considered Christians. They they believed that they, you know, they believed that uh, Jesus was their Lord and Savior. And so they were conflictive with what they were seeing and what they were being a party to. And that, you know, the, the U.S. government was willingly doing a lot of this stuff. So it shocked them. Yeah, it doesn't shock me because so I've been doing what I've been doing, exposing uh, some of the darkness in government and military for some time. And I was forensically documenting it and would do drop bills um, with various congressmen and legislators and that type of thing. But so a lot of people don't know that the precursor of the Mark of the Beast was introduced on Halloween 2005. It came from the United Nations to the federal government down to the states. And there was a vicious fight. There were core individuals in each state. We were fighting at both the state level and the federal level. Unfortunately, as they would say at work, the train had left the station. So the agenda was going to move forward. It didn't matter. So it was defeated. Originally, the program was known as the National Animal Identification System. It had three pillars. All property, including your body, belongs to the government. Electronic identification of all biological life. That decision was made in 1975 at Asilomar, California and 24-7 surveillance, um, which is what we're seeing now, quite frankly, unfold before our eyes. But they did that on Halloween. Then the B system in 2018 was also announced over Halloween. So they love to pick those dark days. And I'm aware because my dad was involved in some of the occultic um, communications and different things um, if you want to go certain places, even where I worked, um, 
there's some dark things. There's dirt put on you. You're, you're coerced into doing certain things that you would not ordinarily do. And so it is, the United States has this, I mean, we have a wonderful country, but we also have a dark side that has turned over and is in contact with entities and does engage in blood sacrifice to entities and demons. And now they want to bring it, you know, they want to bring us all into the whole system and, you know, they're getting ready to do the end game. Yeah. Another interesting uh, thing that I uncovered was the whole fact that the early remote viewing program was birthed by people who were OTs in Scientology. So that the, 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 Techniques that they learned for remote viewing came out of Scientology, who just happened to be created by one of the understudies of Aleister Crowley, who worked side by side with Jack Parsons on the Babylon working ritual. So I found that very odd that uh, the the two main ones, Ingo Swan as well as Hal Puthoff, they were both OT7s, and their golden boy, Pat Price, who also worked there at SRI, he was also an OT3. So... Again, you can't make this stuff up. No, you can't make that up. Um, so have you personally seen any creatures or UFOs or paranormal phenomena? I would say that I've seen some paranormal things when I was younger, uh, much younger. And um, that was the thing is growing up, my parents were a little more, I guess you would say, relaxed, lenient about as far as like things that I could watch TV shows, movies of that nature. So I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of the stuff that I was into and watching was opening a lot of doorways that probably led to some of that. Yeah, I was a science fiction buff, and but I did it. My parents were very strict with screen time, uh, not television screen time. They didn't have computer screen time back then. And uh, but I was into science fiction. I love science fiction, and so. I'm surprised, honestly, that I turned out, thanks to Jesus Christ, I did not um, go to the dark side uh, because most science fiction is very steeped in um, a lot of the demonic. As a matter of fact, uh, my dad was friends with uh, Gene Roddenberry. So we got to spend time with the original cast and see if it's the original Star Trek being filmed. But well, it was interesting. That's yeah, very they, interesting because he, you know, he was mixed up with the uh, Council of Nine. Yeah, the Nine. Yeah. So yeah, when you start, that's that's the next film that I'm looking to get into. Is I'm going to break that wide open about Gene Roddenberry and the Nine. Another thing, you when you do that project, you might tie it in. Did you ever watch the TV show? Um, it was two seasons, Revolution. I believe I started watching a little bit. That's the one where they uh, have technology that can make electronics work after the the world has gone dark or EMP or yeah, something. Like yeah, that. It, it went dark. But the se- I would say, I mean, you know, you kind of have to watch the first season to get the groundwork for the second season. But the really interesting stuff is in season two. They talk about the fluorescent firefly nano particulates that go into people that turn them into zombies. And that's exactly what they're doing now. Um, They use firefly in 
when GMO first came on the market, they were using jellyfish, but you can't synthesize it. They actually had to culture jellyfish and take and extract it and then put it into whatever they were going to, into the genes of whatever they were uh, mutating. Um, now with synthetic biology, they can synthesize the firefly, the stuff that makes them fire. So that's, that's interesting because there's a uh, series called The Last of Us based on a video game that has to do with uh, like fungus that uh, turns people into zombies. And there's a group that uh, is like the I guess you would consider the rebels and they're called the fireflies. So that's interesting. Yeah, I'd really watch this second season because so I just watched the last one because I don't know, I'm I'm in this project and. You know all the predictive programming. It's all there. Just be, it, be, because the enemy has got to um, follow God's law. And God's he, the Lord always tells his prophets and his children what he's going to do. So the enemy is forced to do that. He has to play. Now, he might deceive and twist and all that kind of stuff. But he does tell people what he's going to do. And he does that through predictive programming. So this second season, I mean, I saw the nano, I saw the fireflies, I saw reference to um, a hemorrhagic. I mean, this is just and zombies all in the last episode just before they cut it off. Oh, and by the way, it was the United Nations who made the script for Revolution. They literally told Hollywood, this is what the script will be each each week. It was the same thing in the movie Stargate. Um, you look at that and it was like the military and all the different government agencies had their hands all over that uh, film, which went on to become one of the biggest TV series. And it's you know, how many, I don't know how many different franchises have spun off from Stargate. So, but yeah, they, they love, they love discussing this stuff and putting it out there where we can see it. And it's also to a certain degree is so that way when, you know, we stand before the throne of judgment that they can honestly say, well, we, we showed them, we told them all this in advance. They were watching it in TV shows and movies. And that's the thing. It's like, yes, this is going to be used against you, whether you realize it or not. So it's good to be mindful of that as well. Yeah. You bought in, <laughs> you bought the hamburger and the fries and the drink, you know, um, if you don't turn it off and, and turn to something godly, I was going to, it was another show. Oh, this isn't a show. This is a book. Are you familiar with the Adam and Eve story? Uh, that's the book that uh, was classified right after yeah. it came out. Yeah. And they, yeah. they only got 57 pages of it supposedly now that you can get your hands on to, to read that's been declassified. No, they're actually, if you go to the CIA reading room, um, that one's redact, heavily redacted. But it, there are ones online, about 113 pages. Plus, you can get 113 pages plus the prelude and the postlude. And there's a reason I'm bringing this up. So my husband and I uh, bought a place on top of a mountain in Montana on the leeward side of, of the Rockies. And we found, we move up there and, you know, there's a few cabins. It's not like a development or anything because you're on top of a mountain. But we found out that everybody was CIA. Of course, at that time, that book was still classified and we didn't have any idea why all the little cabins were CIA. 
But once that was released, of course, unfortunately, that was after my husband was killed. Uh, the Now I know why is because it's on the leeward side of the Rocky Mountains. So in the case of a pole shift, there's this big wall of water that starts in Asia, goes, wipes out, wipes out Washington, California, Oregon, um, Idaho. At Coeur d'Alene, it goes airborne. The, the wave goes airborne. It's about a thousand feet high. And then it crashes down kind of where I am, unfortunately, um, in the Midwest and wipes out the, continues on, wipes out the Midwest, wipes out the East, blah, 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 and goes around the world. So really the only safe place supposedly in that scenario, and there is evidence, archaeological and um, geologic like the dinosaurs over in the Green River, uh, is that Wyoming? I'm not sure if it's Wyoming or if it's Utah, um, where Dinosaur National Monument is. The, the bones are all jumbled and crumbled, and that's why, because there was this giant wall of water. Um, so it's kind of interesting. They do know things that they just don't want to tell us, but now they're really letting everything out at this point. They're not being bashful at all. They're just, anything goes now, and they figure it's too late for anybody to really prepare spiritually or physically. The good thing is, is we know that that, uh, that's not correct, and we know that our salvation lies in Jesus Christ, and all we have to do is turn to him and accept him as our Lord and Savior and put all of our trust in him and be obedient and follow his word, and that we know that... uh, we don't have to worry about how this world ends or, or how we go out in this world. Uh, it's all about the next life and the eternity being with him. So, Well, it's also comforting to know that there is going to be a remnant and that evil is, yes, it's given its time, but it is not the end of the story. And yeah. it's, you know, Jesus comes back, he sits on the throne and depends why you know a, a thousand years of peace and then and then i hope to get i don't know when do you think we get our glorified body before before or after well i believe it's the the ones that uh perish during the tribulation period will be the ones that reign uh during the millennial reign along with christ so the rest of us won't come onto the scene until after the thousand year millennial reign, after Satan's loose for a while. And then he's finally swept back into the lake of fire for forever. And then the rest of us will be judged and then we will have our new bodies and that we will be on new earth, new Zion and be with the, the Lord forever after that. I can hardly wait for that. day. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I mean, even though like your work is absolutely fascinating and riveting and I love my work and the calling that the Lord has called me to do, but sometimes it is war and I get tired, you know, day in, day out, you know, there's no days off in it. I mean, there really isn't. You know, because a lot of a lot of people out there, they think, you know, if you're walking close with the Lord, that it's going to be easy. It's going to be a cakewalk. And it's, that's not the case. If uh, anything that you should know and learn is that the closer you walk with the Lord, the stronger and the more massive the attacks are going to be. And they're going to come and they're going to come quite frequently. And when you are truly being obedient to the Lord, that's when the attacks can be relentless at times. 
but that's the thing. It's like, no matter how, how hard it might be, or, you know, depressed you might be or whatever, you should just draw closer to the Lord and be like the apostles when they got uh, beaten and thrown in prison. Whenever they got out, they were like, you know, they were excited that they got to be persecuted for his namesake. They were exact, you know, they were ecstatic. They were like, yeah, this is awesome. So that's how we got to be and just endure until he comes to claim us and take us home. And then after that, we probably won't even think about a lot of the stuff that we went through in this lifetime. We'll be too busy enjoying the next. Absolutely. So in your film, uh, I know we digressed for a minute, but that's kind of the fun of meandering through, you know, and, and getting to know you and your work. Um, so what was the biggest challenge in doing the film? Uh, I would say a lot of the, the books that I was reading because some of the material, especially the stuff about Kenneth Grant, uh, when I was looking into a lot of that, uh, the esoteric and occult stuff, I was familiar with some of the stuff that was in there, but not all of it. So there was a lot of different things that I had to do extra digging and look, look up a lot of stuff and try to wrap my head around what it was that they were exactly talking about, because just because you read something and it sounds like it's meaning this, that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of hidden meanings in a lot of the different things, like uh, the Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God book that I had to read that uh, Kenneth Grant wrote, who was the, the guy who took over um, the Lima and OTO after Crowley died. And he wrote this Typhonian series. And one of the books in there was the Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God book. And he talks about the sole purpose that NASA was created was to make contact with the other side. Well, when you look up this, uh, the stuff about the Kelepot or the Klippeth and some of the things that they're talking about in there, as well as this Ashtakari, uh, uh, Ashtakari is a demonic realm that's referred to as the other side. And in fact, they talk about, there was, um, what was it? Five, five kings of Edom that rule over this demonic realm. And the more I was looking into it, I was just like, holy cow, this is, uh, this is pretty mind blowing. Well, that's what I thought when I watched uh, Stranger Things. Like, I didn't know that Demogorgon was a real thing. I thought they just made up this word. And so one time I was doing, I don't know, an article or something, and I looked up Demogorgon. And there it was, it was some demonic creature. I can't remember now because who wants to remember the demonic when you can look at the glory of Jesus Christ. So I don't, you know, it went in it one side. It was there long enough to do the research and then out. And then also the upside down world. And isn't that where we're living right now? The upside down world where good is evil and evil is good. I mean, it's, Crazy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. And that uh, a lot of the stuff that you see in that TV show, you know, you think that this is all made up, but it's like completely based on reality. And they were they were tapping into other dimensions. They um, even uh, what was it? Uh, the 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 chair that they used uh, at the facility in Camp Hero that um, they referred to as the Montauk chair where individuals would sit in it and they said that they could think about certain things and things would appear from another dimension into this reality and vice versa. Sometimes they would bring creatures into this reality. And um, at the, the last time that they were using the Montauk chair, there was a child by the name of Duncan who was sitting in it. 
and they walked up and whispered something into his ear. And then all of a sudden he thought of some creature. It appeared. And this thing, depending on who saw it, everybody said they saw something different. Some people said it was nine feet tall. Others said it was 30 feet tall. And they said it was completely hairy, almost looked like a Bigfoot, and that it was just going around destroying everything in sight and uh, possibly even killed a few people on the base. So, like I said, can't make this stuff up. So is do you know if the Montauk is um, related to the Montauk monster of Plum Island? I don't know if it's necessarily because um, I know what you're talking about, Three Mile Island with the um, research facility out there where supposedly mm-hmm. the Lyme disease and a bunch of yes. other stuff came from. Yeah. But again, if that's the case, if that if that is the case, what you're talking about were they bringing things in from other realities, other dimensions into our reality and keeping them locked up kind of like the, what is it? Uh, the Island of Dr. I can't think of the name of Moreau? it. Dr. Moreau. Moreau. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Moreau. So is it something like that where all these creatures are literally locked up out there from another dimension on this prison on a three mile Island? I don't know. Well, now the island is no more. It's now in the Manhattan, Kansas, in the heart of America, in the heart of cattle and agriculture. It is And they've got the most lethal weapons. And they have an insect area where they're weaponizing bugs against us. I mean, it's crazy. And this well, one, unlike uh, Plum Island, I could go and I could look at the research they were doing. I even had film footage that I had of college students cavorting around and they were supposed to go into quarantine afterwards and they didn't. I did some marvelous exposés on Plum Island, but this new facility, you can get the um, plans. And as far as very little comes out of that facility, because it's all classified what they're doing inside. And it's a level four bio lab that just happens yep. to be sitting right in the middle of Tornado Alley. So, you know, what could yeah. go wrong? Yeah, what, what, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Nothing. So you've got Ghostbusters on your shirt. And so have you ever seen a ghost? I don't think I've ever seen a ghost, but uh, we know who the original Ghostbuster is. In fact, the demons always trembled whenever they got near Jesus and... uh you remember when Legion encountered him, they said, you know, if you come to a torture us before the appointed time, and he always told him, be silent. He didn't want testimony coming from unclean spirits to who he was. So it's just a, something from my childhood, but also it's a good conversation started to lead straight into the gospel. So I use everything. It doesn't matter if it's ancient aliens or whatever. It's like I can quickly steer it into the Bible real quick. And that's good. That's that's the way the way that it should be. And so what is the most succinct revelation that you got from the Lord in your project? Uh, Mainly, I just wanted to show that, yes, there is a lot of darkness in this world. Um, And that's why at the towards the end of the film, you see where I show how everything jumped off around the year 1947. And I show how all the UFO activity just literally went completely through the roof. 
And it wasn't just the United States. It was also Europe as well as Australia. And you have to ask yourself, why are these locations, why are they such hot spots? Why do they light up like a Christmas tree? And it all boils down to that a lot of the people that live in these areas or these geographical locations are completely mixed up in the occult and esoteric. Um, like I didn't even realize until I had to start doing some of the research on the Kenneth Grant books, you can't even buy them in the United States. You have to order them from England. And so, you know, again, um, knowing people in Australia as well, that a lot of the people over there, um, had immigrated back in the early 1900s over to, from, uh, from Europe all the way out to Australia. So again, they took a lot of these beliefs and uh, things that they were mixed up in and carried it off to there as well. So I think that's why you see such um, prevalent um, UFO activity and encounters and how all this stuff just kind of cherry picks right off of a lot of the things that people are mixed up in and that they are habitually uh, opening doorways. Yeah, there was a there's a lot of uh, witchcraft. There's a lot of wonderful Christian people in Australia, but there's a lot of witchcraft over there as well. It's it's kind of like a hot spot for witchcraft. And it's not just the people that live there. Again, the you know, keep in mind, I'm saying that a lot of this stuff has to do with the, the governments of these places, what they are involved in, what they are invoking, and what they are doing. Uh, even the FBI document 6751 that was declassified back in 1948. Um, they knew all the way back then that these supposed UFOs were interdimensional. And they even used esoteric and occult terms like the Talas and the Lokas. And they even said, you know, those who are familiar with occult and esoteric terms will understand what we're talking about here. And when you look in the Talas and Lokas, what is what is that? Well, it has to do with interdimensional or even demonically or heavenly realms. So that's very interesting because so in the 1990s, I, I was on a couple of forums and one of them is called One Health. And it was for what would be come known later as um, precision medicine. And I just opened a thing on a seminar that or a webinar that they're going to be giving. I don't know when it is pretty soon because uh, I just opened it. And it is talking about interdimension, not interdimensional, inter interpandemic. So we're in this interpandemic time. So like, it's almost like an idol that we're worshiping the pandemic. Um, that if we feed the the pandemic gods, that you know we'll be okay. I mean, these people are absolutely insane. They're the ones that really want to depopulate the earth. But I had never heard that interpandemic period before, and you know that was my expertise is. is um, and I follow One Health and also working with FEMA. So um, I just never heard that term. But now I think it needs to be on our radar that they really do have this plan. It's like like interglacial in between the glaciers. And But there are certain actions that, that we're supposed to take. Like we're all supposed to get this, go under the World Health Organization and under the United Nations. 
how about just calling on the name of the creator God, Jesus Christ, and Abba Father in heaven, and say, you know, protect, please protect me from, you know, whatever, or please heal me if I do get sick, God forbid. And so, but they want us to call on different gods. Um, well, a lot of them, they, they would rather worship the creation rather than the creator. Yes. And they're, they're quite content with that. And then you've got a lot of people out there that claim to be Christians. They say that they worship Jesus, but they're worshiping another Jesus. So it's even like the series, The Chosen, that a lot of people will get so swept up into. And they just completely adamant about, you know, this is an incredible series. You know, it's doing so much work for the kingdom. And it's like, but it's not biblical. And they've even in their own mouths have come out and said that 90% of it doesn't even come from the Bible. Well, I have a big problem with that. And I'm not going to promote, nor am I going to endorse or stand behind anything that is not completely 100% coming from Scripture. You know, I'm sorry, but 10% is just not enough for me. I want 100. Yeah, I stand with you. I've been a critic of the of the chosen um, because some of the words are coming as straight out of the Book of Mormon. It's filmed on a Mormon set. Um, it's a that, Mormon company. It's a Mormon yeah. It's company. a more is a Mormon company. So you're giving money to the Mormon, um, and Mormons are not Christians. They are well, not the, Christians. You also have the Catholics and the Templars involved as well, and that's yes. another thing. If you don't know much about the the Catholic Church as well as the Templars, especially. Uh, or even the Jesuits, Rosicrucians, any of this kind of stuff. It's like you need to seriously start cracking some books and reading a little bit because what you will read, you're not going to like, and you're not going to want to have any part of it. Yeah, this one guy did this for, I think it was like four-hour video, and he did an excellent job. You know, I don't have time to watch anything for four hours, but I wanted to do my homework, and that's one thing I will do is dig in. And so it was a video, which is different for me than a book, but he would get uh, how he got the footage. I don't know, but he was on Zoom meetings with the actor that plays Jesus with like skulls on his thing. Uh, and uh, he is a large promoter of the gay and lesbian um, agenda. And they're meeting with the Pope and getting the Pope's like blessing for them. I'm just like, no, you know, that is not that what they're doing is branding Jesus and saying it's the authentic Jesus, but that's not who Jesus is. They're putting Jesus in a box. They're glamorizing Jesus for marketing purposes. And that is not good in my book. Yeah, Good Vibe Ministries has got about a 30-minute long documentary where they have all this footage that you're talking about. You can actually hear it coming from their mouths where they say 90% of this is not even coming out of the Bible. And the, the, the guy that plays Jesus talking about the Templars, like they're this great organization like the you know Masonic Freemasons and so on, and talking about praying to dead saints and Mary and all that. And it's like, you know, uh-uh. So what's your next project going to be? I'm thinking the next project is going to be on the nine. I want to uh, do a deep dive on uh, Pirovich and um, Edgewood Arsenal, as well as uh, this group of wealthy um, elite Americans who were mixed up in all this and that they 
ended up uh, being part of the Knights of the or uh, the Roundtable group as well as Lab Nine, but that they were all working, um, doing seances and mediums, uh, dealing with this group that referred to themselves as the Council of Nine, and um, even Aleister Crowley has made the uh, statement, uh, I serve my God Lucifer and his Augustus Council of Nine. So that right there should tell you who the Nine actually is, the Council of Nine, and that there's been nine gods or nine ruling gods over every pantheon, every civilization all throughout history, You know, whether it be the nine gods over Egypt, the nine gods that ruled over Olympus, and so on. I mean, you just see it over and over and over. And like I said, when you truly break it down and understand that these are all the same nine gods and that Lucifer is the head of it, it just makes you wonder how far has this facade really been going on? And does this actually go all the way back to the garden, which of course we know that it does. Yeah, it does. I think it might've been slower in the beginning. Um, so I got a question for you since we're kind of talking about different things. So when Cain slew Abel, and of course he had the mark put or, or the seal put on his head because he was scared that the people out there were going to kill him. Who do you think those people were? Because if everybody, if humanity or mankind was in the gar, all in the garden, who were the people out there that would, would have killed him? Well, this it's one of these, this, whenever people pose that to me, I ask, you know, how deep do you want to get into this? Do you want to talk about the pre-Adamic or, you know, what they call gap theory? Uh, do you want to talk about six-day generation, uh, six-day generation and, you know, pre-Adamite? Or, you know, how, how deep do you want to go? Because we can get pretty deep. And, you know, anybody who's done just a little bit of research into the gap theory or pre-Adamite or pre-Adamic, whatever you want to call it, um, and uh, Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, the Tohu Bohu, I mean, you know, right then and there that uh, mm-hmm. the translation is not correct, that there was a flood before the flood of Noah. Why was there a flood before the flood of Noah? And um, what was he trying to uh, get under control? And uh, on top of that, you got the whole thing about six day generation because you got two creation accounts in Genesis where it talks about God created men and women and told them to be fruitful and multiply. But then he turns around and he says, well, then he got, God created Adam. Adam was unique. He put Adam in the garden. So it's like, okay, well, what about this other group of men and women that he had already created? And now we're over here on Adam and talking about this garden. So, again, it's all about context. And like I said, if you take all these things into context, that there was pre-Adamic uh, generation as well as the six-day generation I don't think it's too far a stretch to figure out who it was that he was uh, fearful of and that he felt that if they encountered him, that they would hurt him or possibly even kill him. And that that is why God marked him so that when they saw him, they would not want anything to do with him. They, they would not want to incur the wrath of God. Yeah, I think that they were just my take is that they were humanoids but maybe did not have a soul um, like we do. So I don't know, you know? Yeah. So that's what, I mean, these, it's not, it's not like um, this is not a salvational issue getting into topics like this. This is just being like the Bereans and, you know, wanting to rightly divide the word and to dig deeper 
And there's nothing wrong with searching a matter out because, I mean, you know, we should be able to talk about anything in the Bible. Any, anybody, any pastor or anybody within a church that tells you we don't need to talk about this kind of stuff, it's not important, you need to run. That's a church you don't want any part of because if we can't discuss the, the word, that's that's not a church. That's a cult. Yeah, absolutely. And we got to put it in context. Exactly. Because if you don't put it in context, you can anybody can take a word out or a sentence out of the scripture and build a cult, cult on it. But so we have to have it in context. It has to fit together. Um, it really is put together like a brick, layer upon layer, um, brick upon brick, as it's built. So precept upon precept, you know. Well, tell people about some of your other work. So when they go to VMO and check it out, and are we going to encourage people? Let's see, are we going to have the trailer? Are we going to attach the trailer to this interview? Yeah, we can attach the trailer to this. Uh, I know that uh, you work with Karsten, so he's a friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, he can, he's got the trailer. He can put that in there quite easily. And, um the you can find the film he'll also i'm sure put a link to the film in there as well yes. but uh you if you don't let's just say somebody ripped the audio from this and they put it up on their own channel and they're just listening to this you can go to google and you can type in vimeo v-i-e-o and it's Ken walkers and stranger things of the unseen realm and also if you're on youtube you can also look that up as well and find my channel it's called true seekers research and eventually I do plan on doing like a Patreon type thing where I'll probably be putting up a video every week or every other week uh, for those who want to uh, support our ministry and to uh, get the word out. And they will get exclusive videos that nobody else will have access to. So it's coming. I'm working on it. Okay. So what, what are your other films so that if um, people are interested in your work? Yeah, the uh, previous films that I did, I worked with uh, two guys by the name of the Justin Westfall, uh, the Fall Brothers, as people know them as. We worked, uh, I was executive producer, which means I financed the film Hollow Earth Chronicles, episode one, The Dark Chambers. And I was also executive producer of uh, uh, Higher Entities, The Lost Tapes. And then I also did uh, media consultant work on Belly of the Beast when they were working at uh, Skywatch TV, working for Defender Films with, alongside uh, Tom Horn and all them. So I've uh, done quite a few films already. This is my fourth film, my solo film. So I'm hoping that uh, it blesses a lot of people and uh, I'm hoping it opens a lot of people's eyes and leads them to the Lord more than anything. Well, it certainly was fascinating, and thank you so much for listening to the Holy Spirit and doing the film and doing such a intense job. Some people would have just glossed over it, but you just took it by the the bull by the horns, so to speak, and did excellent research and great, you know, old footage. And that's not easy to get a hold of all the time these days. Um, so you did a great job in putting it together. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it was an honor to be here with you today. Well, it was an honor to have you. So this is Celeste with the Celestial Report, and we will see you the next time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's presentation. Continue to be safe, and we will see you next time.
Greatly appreciate your continued support. Be safe. You have been listening to the Cosmic Reality Radio Show, produced by Cosmic Reality Radio. Thank you for listening. Choose your heart.